I just find uh, Easter weekend a bit of a funny weekend. Uh, they tell me on the news it's the most holy weekend in the Christian calendar. Uh, but I think Christians tend to find, well, actually Easter's the same as every other weekend when we celebrate Jesus died for our sins and rose again. In fact, every day of my life I celebrate that Jesus died for my sins and rose again. So there's actually nothing special about Friday or Sunday other than the government gives us a holiday to celebrate it together. So Praise God for them, we get to eat lots of chocolate, so hey, stick with it, I say. But anyway, uh, I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to look at this great story. Our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the wonderful news of Easter, the fact that you sent your Son into the world to die in our place, taking the punishment for our sin upon himself so that we might find forgiveness. But more than that, you raised him to life, giving us the hope of eternal life. And as we look at this part of your word together now, we pray that you will remind us yet again of just how wonderful our Lord and Saviour is, and in particular just how wonderful the blessing it is to know him. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, My favourite show on TV that I watch, Victoria and I watch every week when it's on, is uh, Would I Lie to You? Has anyone else seen that? Has anyone else watched that show? where people actually lie to one another. I probably shouldn't recommend it. But anyway, uh, there's a comedian on that, a guy called Rob Bryden, and I saw something uh, where he did a, a thing in sort of in commemoration of the 400th anniversary of William Shakespeare, and he went through and showed how people who say they don't know any Shakespeare at all and they hated Shakespeare at school, how they actually just quote Shakespeare if they talk for more than five minutes. So basically, if you talk for five minutes, you will have quoted Shakespeare. One reason is he invented more words in the English language than anyone else. So Shakespeare had this thing, which is a really handy thing to do. It's when you can't find a word in the dictionary, you just make one up. And so all these words we use and think are normal, he created. But also there's all these sayings. So if you were on your way here tonight and you couldn't find your car keys and you sort of said, oh, they've disappeared into thin air... You were quoting Shakespeare at that point. You didn't even know it. If you're listening to Tom Reed and you thought, I don't know what Jesus is talking about there, it's all Greek to me, you're quoting Shakespeare. Uh, it's early days, Shakespeare. You know, all these sayings that we just think are sayings, Shakespeare wrote them. Uh, and if you have, as I say, if you speak for five minutes, you'll have used a word he created, you'll have used a saying that he had in one of his plays. Uh, and it's the same with the Bible. And especially with the old King James version of the Bible, where I find today people quote Jesus all the time and they don't realise they're quoting Jesus. And that's because it's just part of our culture. The Bible has just sort of come into the way we speak. So people say, oh, I think you should do unto others as as you would have them do unto you. And they're quoting Jesus and they don't even realise it. There's all these sayings, you know, cast the first stone. It's Jesus who they're quoting. And one Bible story that's just become part of the way we speak, even if people don't know the story, is this story, the story of Lazarus. People know about this guy, Lazarus. And so you may not remember him, some people here, but people of my age and older will. John Howard used to be the Prime Minister of Australia. Before he was the Prime Minister, he was the opposition leader for a long, 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 long time. And when he became Prime Minister after his like seven millionth attempt... Paul Keating said he is Lazarus with a triple bypass. And his point is, he's risen from the dead. He's come back from nowhere. And when that guy, Stephen Bradbury, remember him at the Winter Olympics when he he just sort of stayed on his feet and everyone else fell over and he wins the gold medal, the commentator says he's like Lazarus. And people say, yeah, I know what Lazarus means. You've come back against the odds. You've, You've succeeded in some way when everyone expected you to fail. 
The thing about Lazarus is, even though his name has just become a part of our culture and people know what he's talking about, he's actually a fairly obscure character in the Bible. And in particular, unlike those other stories, unlike the way we often use the story, he's not famous for his comeback. He didn't do anything. What Lazarus is famous for is for what Jesus did for him. Uh, So let's look at the story of the original Lazarus. And I think it's one of the great stories of the gospel. So come with me in John chapter 11. Now at this point in Jesus' ministry, he's away from Jerusalem. He's been to Jerusalem and they've tried to kill him. But he's not ready to die yet. And so he's gone to the other side of the Jordan, sort of to get away. So the other side of the Jordan River. Uh, But then he gets word that one of his closest friends, Lazarus, who lives in the town of Bethany, right back near Jerusalem, is sick. Uh, And so Lazarus lives with his sisters, Mary and Martha, and you hear a bit more about them in the Gospels. And they know Jesus can do something for Lazarus because they've seen Jesus heal other people. So they send word. Jesus, come back. Your friend who you love dearly, Lazarus, is ill. But when Jesus gets the word, he does something really strange. You expect Jesus, you know, Jesus who loves everyone, that sort of thing, to say, oh, well, I'll rush back to Lazarus. Jesus doesn't. It says, I'm going to stay where I am for two more days. He doesn't drop what he's doing to rush back to his friend and heal him. He actually leaves him to get worse. Now, was Jesus just indifferent Was Jesus just trying to prove a point that he loves all people equally and Lazarus shouldn't get special treatment? Or was he scared of going back to Jerusalem because they were going to kill him there? Certainly that's what the disciples were. Thomas actually says when they go back, he says, well, we're going to our death. It's all over. But now right from the start, what you see here is Jesus has something bigger in mind. Jesus stayed away because he wanted to do something more than heal Lazarus. So look at verse 4. It says, when Jesus heard it, he said, this sickness will not end in death, but is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, I think the disciples probably misunderstood Jesus. They thought it wouldn't end in death, meant, oh, Lazarus isn't going to die, so we don't have to rush back. But Jesus actually meant not end in death in the sense that after he dies, that won't be the end of the story. Jesus knew he was going to do something that would show the glory of God even more amazingly than when he made a blind man see or or made a lame man walk or did all the other wonderful things he did. So then anyway, after two more days goes past, Jesus finally says to his disciples, Lazarus is dead. And they're probably thinking, well, that means we don't have to go back. And Jesus says, no, no, no. So now we're going back now that he's dead. And the disciples still don't get it at all. They think, why go back? where they want to kill you if he's dead already. And so Jesus makes the point again at verse 14. Look there. So Jesus then told them plainly, Lazarus has died. I'm glad for you that I wasn't there, so that you may believe. And there is the reason this story is in the Bible. Jesus is saying, this is all on purpose. I am doing this so you might see what I am able to do. You might then really understand who I am. And you might believe in me. That's the point of it. And it's the same for us. So let's have a look. We'll move on into act two of the story. So after a couple of days, they arrive in Bethany. And by now, Lazarus has been in the tomb, it tells us, for four days. That's on purpose that they tell us that. The point is, he is dead. There's no disputing it. 
You know, if it was one day, people might have said, oh, well, Jesus just revived him in the coolness of the tomb. So, no, 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 he's been dead for four days. There's no disputing this. And by now, people are coming from all over the countryside to grieve with Mary and Martha, the two sisters. This wasn't a private little moment. The town was full. People had come in from Jerusalem to grieve with them. And so as Jesus comes into town, Martha goes out to meet him. So look at verse 21. It says, then Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now we can't, we weren't there, so we can't really tell. She's just stating a fact at that point. Like, oh, if you'd been here, you might have been able to do something. I think there's sort of a hint of accusation in her voice at this point. We've seen you heal people. There are people here in this village who are alive today because you came and healed them, but you weren't here for your friend. You weren't here for Lazarus. But even then, she has some hope. Look at verse 22. She says, yet even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. I don't think she's expecting Jesus to raise Lazarus from the dead because she doesn't think he can do it later on when he does it. I think she's just saying, I still believe in you. Even though Lazarus is dead, you are special, Jesus. You have this incredible relationship with God and I still believe in you. And so now finally, Jesus speaks. Is there anything harder than when you come to a funeral and you meet the bereaved people? Is there anything harder than working out what to say at that point? I take a lot of funerals and I still don't know really what to say when I see the widow or the parent or the child as they're there grieving the loss of their loved ones. And you don't know what to say. If you know what to say, tell me, I don't. And so what ends up happening is people just say meaningless platitudes. Oh, he's in a better place now. Uh, Meaningless, meaningless. But it's all we can say because death is awful. What does Jesus say? Look at verse 23. He says, your brother will rise again. Now, because we know the end of the story, we hear what Jesus is saying. This is what he's been planning all along, to, to raise Lazarus to life. But Martha just hears it as one of those platitudes. This is just what any religious Jewish rabbi would say to you. She knows her Old Testament. She knows that one day in the distant, distant future, there will be a day when everyone is raised from the dead for the day of judgment. She's read the prophet Ezekiel. She's read the prophet Daniel. So she takes it as sort of a statement of religious truth. You know, one of those things that you know is true, but it doesn't particularly help you here and now. But Jesus says, no, no, no. I am telling you more than that. And so now Jesus makes the most incredible claim ever made. Look at verse 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die ever. Do you believe this? What is Jesus claiming there? He is saying that hope of eternal life is not some vague hope for the future. He is saying, I am the one who has come from God to defeat death once and for all. I am the one who has come from God to offer you a hope that no one else can offer. No one else can offer you hope beyond the grave, but I alone can offer you that. And so if you just believe in me, well then if you die... I can tell you, you will rise again. 
And if somehow you are still alive when I return, you will never die. We've heard it before, and we know Jesus is the resurrection of life. But do you understand just hear how crazy that is? How, how just out there that claim is that Jesus made? It's moments like these where that famous quote from C.S. Lewis rings true. You've heard me say it before, you know, where, where he said, basically, don't you tell me that you think Jesus was a great man or a great moral teacher or anything like that, because... Great men don't say, I am the resurrection and the life. Wise moral teachers don't say, if you believe in me, you will never die. C.S. Lewis said Jesus was either a liar, a lunatic or the Lord. There is no other option because it's only liars and lunatics who make claims like this. Now, I don't think Martha understood the point Jesus was making. But even though she doesn't really comprehend it all, she says, I do believe. Look at verse 27. Yes, Lord, she told him, I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who comes into the world. She believed in Jesus, even if at this point she hadn't really grasped everything about what that meant. But we'll come back to that at the end, because now the stage has been set for the most important part of the story, where Jesus proves that he's not a liar and he's not a lunatic, and instead he proves he is the Lord. So now let's move into Act 3 of the story. So Martha goes and gets her sister, Mary. And Mary comes out to Jesus and all the crowds are there following her out to the tomb. And then she just falls at Jesus' feet, weeping with absolute despair. And what it says next is, I think, one of the most incredible insights into Jesus in all of Scripture. So come with me, look at verse 33. It says, When Jesus saw her crying and the Jews who had come with her crying... He was angry in his spirit and deeply moved. Where have you put him? He asked. Lord, they told him, come and see. Jesus wept. That verse, verse 35, is the shortest verse in the Bible. If you want to win the next church trivia competition, I've given you the answer. There you go. But it might be the shortest verse, but it's actually, I think, one of the most powerful verses in the Bible, isn't it? Jesus wept. Because what it is saying to us is that when God the Son took on flesh, when Jesus became human, he did not remain remote from our experiences. He did not remain remote from our suffering and our pain and all the things we go through. He feels our pain. This is the wonder of the incarnation, what we celebrate at Christmas. At Christmas time, we talk about Jesus being Emmanuel. You know how we always read about Jesus called Emmanuel, and it means God with us. Well, this is what it means. He is with us in every sense of the world. When I went to Nairobi a few years ago, I got taken into some of the worst slums in the world. So these are horrible places. They really are. And I got taken in there to see some of the Christian aid projects and all that sort of thing. And it's horribly confronting and not a little bit scary when you're down there in the depths of these slums and you are the one person who clearly stands out. At the end of the day, though, after seeing all these amazing works Christians were doing in those places, I got back in the van and they drove me back to the guest house and put on a buffet dinner for me. You see, I saw it, but I didn't experience it. I didn't have to sleep a night in those tin shacks. I didn't have to find my meal from within that slum. 
I saw it, but I didn't experience it. And I think sometimes when I talk to people, that's how they think about God. They think, oh, God sees it all, but he, but he can't empathize with it. He doesn't experience it. Sees it all, but he's aloof from our experience. In Jesus, God the Son came and lived in the slum. That's what this is saying. Jesus is fully human. He knows what it is to struggle with temptation. When you are tempted, Jesus has experienced it. He knows what it is to feel pain and rejection. He knows what it is to experience that emptiness and that total agony of losing a loved one. That is the wonderful truth that is wrapped up in those two words. Jesus wept. But there's another little intriguing comment there. You might have noticed it in verse 33. You see it there? It says, as he saw their grief, Jesus was angry in his spirit. And then down at verse 38, when he came to the tomb, it says he was angry in himself again. What's that about? Some people say he was angry at Mary and Martha for their mourning. Some people read this and say he was angry at them because of their lack of faith. They should have known he could fix this situation. They should have trusted him more. I don't think that's what it was. Jesus is angry at death. He is angry at the fact that this world is so broken that his friend is lying in a tomb. You see, the Bible tells us death is not natural. You know how people say there are two great certainties in life, death and taxes? There is actually only one great certainty in life, and that is taxes. (laughs) Because we are designed to live forever. With God, that is the way God made us. And death has only entered the world because of human sin. And in 1 Corinthians 15, the Troy read for us earlier on, or he read a bit of it, a bit later on, it says, Jesus has come into the world to deal with our greatest enemy, which is death. And so as he walks to the tomb, Jesus weeps, sort of in sympathy with Mary and Martha at the loss of their struggling But also there is the sense that he's like the fighter walking into the ring and saying, well, bring it on. I'm angry and I'm going to beat you. That's what he's saying to death at this point, which brings us to the final act, the final part of the story. So Jesus, angry and weeping, walks up to the tomb. The tomb was a, a hole in the rock with a stone rolled over it. Very, very similar to the tomb Jesus would be in a very short time after this. Uh, and all the people think he's there to say his last goodbye. All, all the people that are there thinking, you know when you see people when they go to the grave to just say some final words to their friend, that's what the people are thinking. They say, look at how much he loved Lazarus as he goes to spend some time with him to say goodbye at the tomb. But then Jesus says, remove the stone. And you can imagine the consternation at this point. Have you, have you ever been at a funeral at the graveside and they've put it all in and then someone says, dig it up. That's what Jesus is saying at this point. People go, no, you can't do that. Martha says, he's been in there four days. They make it a bit nicer in the English, but she's basically saying, he is rotting. He'll smell. You can't open a tomb four days after you've put a dead body in there. But Jesus just says, believe and you will see the glory of God. And so they roll away the stone and then Jesus does something a little bit strange. He prays in front of, the, front of them, but it's a funny prayer. Look at verse 41. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you heard me. I know that you always hear me, but because of the crowd standing here, I said this, 
so they may believe you sent me. He's praying, but it's more for the benefit of the people watching. You see, he's making a point for everyone there. This, this is no party trick. I'm not some magician who's come to, you know, do a body switch or, or something like that. What I want you to know is this is God at work. What you are witnessing here is God, or the God of the universe, raising this man from the dead through me, his son. And so Jesus then shouts, Lazarus, come out. And out walks the dead man. And they unwrap the cloths bound around him, and there he is, alive. And it is amazing. It's incredible. And the reason Jesus did it is so that you might believe that he is the son of God. And certainly many people that day believed, it tells us. But on Easter Sunday, you can't help but compare the raising of Lazarus to the resurrection of Jesus a short time afterwards. And you're meant to do that. Because that's why Jesus did this. He raised Lazarus to say to them, you ain't seen nothing yet. I am the resurrection and the life. You have something better than even this to look forward to. Because you see, the thing about Lazarus was he was restored to life, and that's amazing. But have you seen him lately? I don't imagine you have. Because Lazarus got sick again. We actually hear in the Bible that the Jewish leaders tried to kill him. So to get rid of the evidence, so to speak, because every time Lazarus walked around, people could say, there's the man Jesus raised from the dead. And they couldn't have that, so they wanted to kill him. We're told, we find from other places, that Lazarus escaped to Cyprus and became a church leader there. You don't know, it's on the Bible, we don't know if it's true, but you can go to a church in Cyprus and you'll find the place where supposedly his bones are buried under a church from when he died in 62 AD. Whatever happened, whether they're his bones or someone else's, the point is, he's bones. He's dead. But when Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, the one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. When Jesus said that, he was talking about something far more wonderful than what he did for Lazarus. You see, Jesus' resurrection was different. When Jesus was raised from the dead, it was a physical body. People looked at him and said, that's Jesus, and there are the scars on his hands, and there are the, there's the spot in his side where the spear went in, and he still ate fish, and he still drank wine, and he did all those things, but his new body was imperishable and immortal and permanent. Jesus still lives today, ascended at his father's right hand, and Jesus says, I'm just the first You see, Jesus says, now that I have been raised from the dead, this is what you can look forward to if you will just believe in me. See, that is the resurrection hope that Jesus offers to anyone who believes in him. As a minister, I go to far too many funerals. I go to a lot of weddings as well. They're nice, but funerals on the other hand. And can I tell you, you really tell whether a philosophy is worth following by whether it has anything to say when you are standing at the graveside. And when I go to a funeral and I stand at the graveside, every other philosophy is meaningless. The person who trusts in science 
or the person who trusts in any other God for that matter, in particular the person who trusts in themselves in this world, has nothing to say and no comfort to give. It is only the person who believes in Jesus who can say, I have a hope beyond the grave. That's what Jesus is saying when he says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. You see, what Jesus did for Lazarus was wonderful. It was only ever meant to be a sign of something far more wonderful. He did this so that we might realize that he can raise us from the dead if we will just believe in him. He gives us the hope of eternal life beyond this world, beyond this life, if we will just believe in him. And so the question we have to answer is the same one Jesus asked Martha. Do you believe this? There's actually no more important question to answer than that one. Do you believe this? And if you are a, a doubter, if you're someone who would say, no, do you know what, I, I don't know that I do, I want to say to you, the evidence is there. Read the four gospel accounts for yourself. Uh, look at books on the subject. There's an article on the front of your weekly snack this week where I've written down about some of the evidence for the resurrection. I want to say to you, do one of those Christianity Explained courses we're always talking about. Look at the evidence. Make your decision. Because there is no more important question to answer than that one. Do I believe this? Do I believe that Jesus is the Son of God who rose from the dead? Because in the end, it is only Jesus' resurrection that gives us hope beyond this life. Jesus' resurrection shows us that death is not the end. Eternal life is not some sort of wishful thinking. It is a reality. It's real. And the only question is, do you believe? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonderful story of Lazarus. But we thank you even more for the wonderful truth of Jesus' resurrection and the hope it gives us for our own resurrection. And we pray that we would be people who truly do believe that Jesus is the Son of God who has risen from the dead and offers us that hope of eternal life. And for anyone here tonight who doubts that or who does not yet believe, we pray that you will help them to look to the evidence and that you will convince them of the wonderful fact that Jesus is the risen Saviour of the world. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.